Please take your Bibles and open to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. That's Ephesians chapter 6, as Patty already read for us, beginning in verse 10 down to verse 20. As you turn there, just a few questions for you. Number one is this. Uh, Do you need to cast the demons out of your new apartment? Number two. Should we be arranging regular power encounters with the territorial demons in our neighborhood? Number three, does holy water sting if you're a vampire? These are just some of the questions I will not be answering in this particular sermon. Instead, we want to see what the Bible actually says about spiritual war. So, we have been taking this high-altitude examination of Paul's letter to the Christians in the city of Ephesus, and Paul begins that letter with a statement concerning their new identity. Remember this? And so they've been changed. They were spiritually dead, and now they've been made alive because they are chosen. Do you remember the next? Saved. Remember the next? <laughs> loved. Loved by God. Chosen, saved, and loved. That's your new identity if you are a Christian. And this new identity is supposed to be resulting in a new way of living. In other words, when you are changed, you are to live differently. So instead of stealing, what does Paul say? Stop stealing, get a job, and make money so you can be generous to people who are in need. Instead of lying, speak the truth to love, speak the truth in love to other people. Instead of being sexually perverse, love your wife, submit to your husband, live with purity if you're single, if you're married. Every Christian, in other words, is to stop certain behaviors and replace them with righteous behaviors. Stop the evil, start the good. And Paul gives really about three chapters of his letter to all of these behaviors. Now, the sheer weight of those commands, stop all these things, start all these things, that can feel a little bit like somebody saying, you've got one afternoon to clean out your garage, get all the clutter out of your garage. And I don't know what your garage is like, but maybe you just open the garage door, you look at all that, and that feels way too overwhelming, and so you close the garage door and you hope it all goes away by itself. And of course, that doesn't work, does it? It may feel overwhelming, but God has given us the grace to actually do what he requires. Uh, Say this word out loud with me, the word normal. Ready? Here we go. One, two, three. Normal. Excellent. Well, friends, this is normal Christianity. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is not some higher level of living. This is usual. This is typical. This is expected Christian life. But normal doesn't imply easy. I think that's where so many people get tripped up. They, they, they look at God and say, well, God, if this is the way you want me to live, why is it so hard to actually do it? Well, here's the answer. Because you're in a war. 
You are in a spiritual war. You're squeezing sins out of your life, and you're adding righteous, like, righteous acts into your life. And, and this, my friend, is war, a spiritual war. Not a war that's fought with guns and stealth bombers, but one that's being waged against an invisible enemy. And that is why Paul writes what he does in verse 12 of Ephesians 6. Look at it there. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Okay, we don't, our, our battle's not with people. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual foes, forces of evil in the heavenly places. What's all that? Well, basically, this, this refers to the evil spiritual forces at work in our world to advance the plans of Satan to wreck everything. Right? That's all you really need to know about that. Paul's just summarizing that these are the evil spiritual forces at work in our world to advance the plans of Satan to wreck everything. Satan has his plans. We saw that in verse 11. He's got schemes. And he plans to confound and ruin and trip up and frighten and destroy everybody on earth, but especially those people with a new identity, those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, as for Satan... Hmm. He's stronger than you could guess. His plans are more evil than you could come up with. And his hatred of you is far worse than you could imagine. He will roar threats through human authorities in the daytime, and he will whisper his temptations through the world in the night. And he's got a thousand years' experience in tempting Christians. He knows how to get Christians to fall. So as people who are chosen, saved, and loved by God, it's precisely as you and I seek to live out that new identity that we pop up on Satan's radar. Blip, blip, blip. There's one. And now you've got his attention because you're seeking to live for your king. Thankfully, Jesus has given you everything you need to successfully resist your enemy and live the normal, quiet Christian life. Many of us are familiar with the imagery of this passage, uh, the armor passage. It makes for a very exciting kids lesson. I don't know, kids, if you've ever had this in Grace Kids, or maybe mom or dad made you a cardboard sword and said, it's a sword of the spirit, and you poked your brother's eye. Uh, you know, we just do crazy things with those things. That's not really what's going on here. This, this armor stuff is heaven and hell kind of stuff. It's vitally important. So let's begin in verse 10. Finally, now the word finally is important. Having given you all these ethical commands, put off this, put on that, put off this, put on this. Finally, all right, this is, this is continuing the, the flow of the argument. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Before I get to the armor, let me just point out three things quickly that will really help your understanding to this passage. The first one is this. The spiritual armor passage is not a call to try harder. <laughs> it's, it's not a call to self-effort. In fact, it's the opposite of that. To be able to stand, right? That's what he's saying, that you may be able to stand. To be able to stand against your enemy, you need to be strong in who? What's it say? 
in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord's strength, not your strength. So that's the first thing. This is not a call to self-effort. The second thing, the armor that we're to put on has already been worn. It belongs to somebody else. What does it say there? Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. It's God's armor. (laughs) His son has already worn it. It is battle-tested, battle-scarred, and battle-successful because it was in this armor that our Lord Jesus defeated Satan at the cross. Ian Duguid, in this excellent little book called The Whole Armor of God, excellent little book. If you want to see it, it's up here later. I recommend it to you. It's a wonderful treatment of this passage. I was greatly helped by it. But he writes in that book, we wear God's armor because Jesus wore it first. And I think that's an important statement. And we know that in large measure because of some passages in Isaiah. Paul wasn't looking at a Roman soldier as much as he was looking at old Isaiah when he wrote this passage. And and the connection to Isaiah makes it clear that the armor Paul's speaking of is God's armor. It was worn, if you like, by the Lord. So no no self-effort here, putting on God's armor here. And the third thing, it's critical to note that the battle we're going to fight is essentially a defensive battle. We're not going on the offense. It's a defensive battle. We're not marching around neighborhoods, breaking down strongholds. There's one word that is repeated four times here. Did you spot it? Look at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Do you think Paul has something in mind? (laughs) Stand. The call of your Lord is to stand. The war is coming to you, Christian. You don't need to go look for it, but you need to be prepared to hold your ground and not turn and run. I love what uh, John Bunyan wrote in The Pilgrim's Progress as Apollyon, the devil, is approaching Christian. Christian bethinks to himself that he might turn and flee, but then remembers there's no armor for the back. (laughs) What a profound little insight. There ain't no spiritual armor for your back, so you better stay facing your enemy. The real thing to fear in the battle is not some, the real thing to fear in the world is not some zombie apocalypse. I realize that's a particularly popular genre right now. You don't need to fear the zombie apocalypse or some resurgence of vampires. If you, that's what you're thinking about. You're getting distracted from the real spiritual battle. The real thing to fear is turning around and running when your real enemy attacks. The thing to fear is being a deserter when the devil comes. When does he attack? I'll tell you when he attacks. He attacks when you're at work and you hear, you remember, you heard this, like really it was hilariously funny but sexually perverse joke and you're tempted to retell that joke because you're really trying to earn favor with your boss but you make the decision because God has told you to be done with that kind of perverse speech and to replace it with good words that build up and the moment you do that you feel you've lost opportunity and you feel tempted to do it again. What's happening? Spiritual war right there. 
As you're putting off the old and putting on the new, this is where you engage the battle. How are you going to defend yourself against a highly experienced, invisible enemy? Ian Duguid again. In the final analysis, standing our ground simply means clinging desperately to Jesus Christ as our only hope of salvation. How do you stand, brothers and sisters? You wear his boots. (laughs) You stand in his feet. You put on his gear. You become who you are by standing in what Christ has done for you. If the big message of Ephesians is become who you are, I'm saying to you, you become who you are by standing in what Christ has already done for you. That's what Paul's getting at in these six pieces of armor. Let's look at them. The first one tells us this. Stand on that which is true, the belt of truth. So you need to turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 11 for a moment. We'll see a couple of pieces of the armor here in Isaiah chapter 11. Many places in Isaiah that speak about a future deliverer for Israel who's going to do a lot more for them than just return them into the promised land. There's one descendant of David who's going to usher them into this entirely new kind of kingdom. So Isaiah 11 verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with a rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Look at verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So when the, when the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into the Greek language so that Greek-speaking people could read the Old Testament, the authors, when they translated the word faithfulness there in verse 5, they, they used the word, the, Greek, the Hebrew word rather for, sorry, the Greek word for truth. There, there was a word in Greek for faithful, but they, they chose the word truth. Why is that? Because this is what Isaiah meant in this passage. He meant that the coming Messiah would act according to Truth, that's what it is to be faithful. It's to act according to what is true. And in this sense, Jesus would be utterly faithful. Truth would fasten around him as his foundational garment. No doubt Paul had that idea in mind as he began his description of God's armor. So look at Ephesians 6. You're going to keep, keep an Isaiah there and look back at Ephesians 6. Stand therefore, verse 14, having fastened on the belt of truth. So a soldier used his belt to gather up his garments in order to enable him to move nimbly in battle. It would be a shame to rush into battle and lose your battle because you tripped on your house coat. So you, you gather it all up and you tie it with your belt. And in that sense, the belt comes first since it's worn beneath everything else. It's a foundational piece of the armor. When the Lord Jesus was attacked by Satan, 
he showed us how this belt was to be used. Three times, Satan tempts Jesus, and three times, Jesus answers the temptation with what? Do you remember? With Bible. He quotes Scripture to Satan. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 4. Now, that was Jesus who was doing that. How much more should we? Friends, you're never going to outsmart the highest of the angelic order. Neither will you trick him or, or lose him or outfox him. You must stand, first of all, by girding yourself with the truth of your Bible, which means you need to know your Bible. You need to know your Bible well enough in order to use it in the fight. Imagine running into an actual war with a weapon, a gun, that, that never misses its mark. It doesn't matter how badly you aim, whatever it's projecting it always hits the target. And you feel pretty confident about yourself, but you get into battle and you go, oh no, I can't remember how to get the safety off. It's not going to do you a lot of good, is it? But yet, that's how so many people try to stand their ground. They run into battle with a closed Bible. Brothers and sisters, it, it's not the cover of the book that's going to scare Satan away. You need to know how to handle the truth. If you're going to beat back your enemy, you've got to use the truth that book contains. Do you have scriptures memorized for the sins that you're particularly prone to so that at a moment's notice when temptation comes, you can call upon that scripture, say it out loud if you have to, and remind yourself is what is true. This is how you will defeat temptation. Sadly, too often we try to fight our enemy with closed Bibles, and as a result, we run around with open wounds. But praise God, the one who wore the belt of truth first used it perfectly on our behalf. He might have hung physically naked on that cross, but he never took off the spiritual belt. He clung to the truth, which was why when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And you are at your best, Christian. When you pick up that bloodied belt and wear it with humble confidence that your father will keep you just as he kept his son. Stand on that which is true. Secondly, stand in the finished work of Jesus. This is the chest protection. Look back to Isaiah, this time to Isaiah chapter 59, Isaiah 59. And here we'll discover these two pieces of God's armor, his, his chest protection and his helmet. We'll get to the helmet in a minute, but pay attention to these verses in Isaiah now to see where it comes from. Isaiah begins by stating a problem. I'm going to go to Isaiah 59, verse 14. You're really going to want to see this in front of you. Isaiah 59, 14. So here's the problem Isaiah states. Sin is ruining everything. This is Isaiah 59, 14. Justice is turned back, righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Even if you are godly, you're going to get gobbled up. And then he notes what God thinks of this problem. The end of verse 15. The Lord saw it 
and it displeased him that there was no justice. And so God identifies that there's no human that is capable of fixing this problem. Verse 16, he, God, saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. And so in his great mercy, God puts his armor on in order to fix the problem. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. And the saving work of God that he accomplishes in this armor, his own armor, begins with punishing sin and sinners. Verse 18, according to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. And then then the work of God that he accomplishes in his armor ends with him saving his people. Verse 20, and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. So here's Isaiah saying, God is coming, and God is going to save his people. We say, praise the Lord. He's going to give his righteousness to his people so that his people can stand in purity before him. And this is the idea that Paul is capturing in Ephesians chapter 6, back in verse 14, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So the second piece of armor that we are to wear in the spiritual battle is that which protects our vital organs, the breastplate, the breastplate of righteousness. The soldiers would wear a breastplate in order to protect their organs from enemy arrows and sword tips. Back in the Pilgrim's Progress, Apollyon assaults Christian, and he begins by saying, well, you've sinned in this way and in that way. He accuses him of being very unfaithful to the king. And Christian says to him, well, tell me how I've sinned. And, and the devil starts, you did this and you did this and you did this. And then Christian responds and says, you left out a few things. <laughs> I also did this and this and this, but I took all of my sins to the cross and there I was pardoned. I walk in the righteousness of my gracious king. Christians don't sow their own righteousness and put it on. They have donned the righteousness of God. This is the message of Paul's letter to the Romans. You can see in Romans 5.19, for as by Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by Christ's obedience, the many will be made righteous. They'll be counted righteous. Therefore, we can say like Paul, I do not have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Ours, beloved, is an alien righteousness. It doesn't come from us, but it comes from another. To be saved is to be given the righteousness of God that was purchased for us by Jesus on his cross. Do you own that righteousness? Is that what you are standing in? Or are you standing in the filthy rags of your own doings? Oh, friend, if you do not own the righteousness of God as your own, then flee to God through Christ Jesus the Savior. Repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus. You can claim this God righteousness, this 
perfect righteousness for your own so that in the day of your death, when you stand before God, you will stand clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. All that he has accomplished for you. That's a great way to stand before God. Accepted in the beloved. For Christians, this is ours already. But Christian, you can be sure God is going to do, or rather Satan, is going to do everything he can to try and make you forget all about that, isn't he? (laughs) He will tell you that you are not worthy of that righteousness. He will lie to you that it can't possibly be yours. He will bring up all of your faults and all of your failings and shout in your face that you have lost that righteousness, which is why you must wear the chest protection, protect your vital organs, your true self, by wearing that blood-spattered breastplate of God's and shouting back at Satan, I stand in the righteousness of another. A perfect righteousness, a forever righteousness secured for me by my Savior at the cross. We don't earn our way to heaven, but we yearn our way there, trusting in the finished work of the soldier who comes riding on a white horse, the one called faithful and true, who in righteousness judges and makes war, our Lord Jesus. Stand on that which is true. Stand in the finished work of Jesus. Number three, stand fast in your proclamation of the good news. Back in Isaiah, now we go to chapter 52. Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Here's yet another passage in Isaiah that predicts the ultimate evangelist, the subject of the evangel himself, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul writes in Ephesians 6, this time verse 15, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, this is one of the trickier bits of the armor in Ephesians 6, but I think the Isaiah passage helps us. It's the only place in the Old Testament that has feet, peace, and peace in one passage. And it seems seems that what Paul is saying here is that the shoes that are going to protect your feet in the battle will be speaking and living the gospel. Christians are people who are announcing to the world, in the words of Isaiah 52, 7, God reigns. God reigns. There's only one God. There's only one King. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. And if you think back, maybe it was yesterday raking leaves to the last time you shared the gospel with someone and maybe they didn't respond to it positively, even if their response was very negative, you might have experienced a sense of great joy in your own heart at having published the gospel of peace. I I wonder if that's some of what Paul is getting at here. Or perhaps you yourself have been overrun by your sins and you, you finally come to your senses, you preach the gospel to yourself for the umpteenth time and Bam, like your, your heart knows a peace that passes all understanding. Maybe that's what Paul is getting at here. What we can be certain of is that Jesus wore these shoes first. 
They have all the marks of a well-contested battle on them. And now he calls on you to put them on and walk in the victory that he has already secured on our behalf. Bare feet might slip on the rocky terrain of this world, but gospel boots will keep you grounded. Keeping the good news clear and keeping the good news announced is going to steady your stance so you can stand. Praise God that Jesus was the perfect evangelist. He never missed an opportunity to share the gospel. In our dealings with unbelievers, Satan has a way of tempting us to forget the gospel, doubt the gospel when the window of opportunity rises. Satan also has a way of reminding us of the gospel when the window of opportunity closes. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, aren't you thankful that the salvation of the lost does not depend on you? I mean, for sure, we want to be as faithful as we can be. But even when we fail in our proclamation of that good news, we stand before God in the boots of our Savior, the perfect evangelist, and we are accepted. That takes us to the fourth piece of armor, the fourth idea here, stand behind your God. Ephesians 6 verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The shield of faith is a part of God's armor. That's interesting. What does that mean? Well, the word shield, it occurs in the ESV 52 times in the Old Testament. The vast majority of times it refers to God. Let me give you some examples. Uh, Genesis 15.1, God says to Abram, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Psalm 3, verse 3, but you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Psalm 115, 11, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. A soldier's shield is intended to protect him from the arrows of the enemy. When Paul talks here about flaming darts, it's not some pub game. This is like real spiritual war stuff, the stuff of real combat. People would dip their arrows in in an oil or substance and, and then light them and zing they go. You've seen it in the movies, like bad enough to be hit with an arrow, but one that's on fire, like that's really awful. Not good for your typically wooden shield. So what is gonna protect from that kind of onslaught? That's actually the wrong question. Who is going to protect us from that kind of onslaught, from the fiery darts of Satan? And the answer, of course, is God. God who himself is our shield. Brothers and sisters, when when you choose to speak truth in this world, to live generously in this world, to flee sexual sins in this world, and Satan launches his attack, hide behind God. 
the shield of faith. This is the only way to extinguish the fire of Satan's tricks and temptations. Put your faith in your shield. Look to God, just as Jesus looked to his father and said through the prophet David, Psalm 31, my times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. And he finishes the psalm with these words, and you heard my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Beloved, he always does. He always hears your pleadings for mercy. So put your faith in God. Stand on that which is true. Stand in the finished work of Jesus. Stand fast in your proclamation of the good news. Stand behind your God. Number five, stand upon the good of what is to come. This is verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation. The second little bit of armor we spotted back in 59, Isaiah 59, verse 17, put on the righteousness as a breastplate. God put on righteousness as a breastplate, and God put on a helmet of salvation on his head. Paul refers to this helmet uh, in a different passage, 1 Thessalonians, in a helpful way. I find it helpful. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8, having put on for a helmet the hope of salvation. That word hope is helpful. I think it gets across what both passages are teaching. It seems to me that the most successful schemes of Satan are the ones that get your minds going in all the wrong directions. He'll say, I'll just think of the present, not what might be the results of this particular action. Act on your feelings, not on facts. Lose your hope. Forget his promises. Reject the truth. Paul has already instructed us in, in Ephesians 4, verses 23-24, we need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. But Satan is going to do everything he can to make you walk like an Egyptian. It's an old song, in case you don't know. Uh, Remember how when Israel came out of Egypt and things started to get difficult, what did they yearn for? They wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back to slavery. They had this idealized thing, like we're tired of this man and we want leeks and onions, okay, and uh, all the stuff we had back in Egypt. You were slaves in Egypt and you want to go back? Satan is always scheming and throwing his darts to get God's people longing for their metaphorical Egypt. You know, it would just be easier to live like everybody else. Which is why Paul said this earlier. Look in Ephesians 4, verse 17. Listen to the mind words. Now this I say and testify in the Lord Jesus, Ephesians 4, 17, that you must no longer walk, that's your behavior, as the Gentiles do. How do they walk? in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Heart is another kind of mind word. It's talking about the inner person. So the best way to protect your mind is to wear the helmet of the hope of salvation. What is that? 
It is to keep reminding yourself of final salvation. It is to live your life as one who is waiting for the great day, the final day, the day of redemption. It's to keep thinking about what is certain to come. The Bible doesn't use the word hope the way some people use it when they say, I hope the mask mandate ends soon. In your Bible, the word hope means a confident expectation of something that is certain. It is the confident expectation of a future reality. And Jesus wore that helmet of the hope of salvation when on the cross he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. Have there ever been words of such hope, of such confident expectation in a future reality? Take up that helmet, beloved, settle it on your noggin, so no matter what schemes the devil concocts for you, your eyes stay on the prize, which is glory. And finally, number six, stand ready to fight back a little bit with your Bible. (laughs) So you need your Bible defensively when you wear the belt, the belt of truth, Got to be like Jesus. You're going to fend off temptation by quoting Scripture. But in close combat, you need the short sword that Paul speaks of here. It's not some big broadsword. It's a little almost dagger thing. That's what you use when the enemy is closest. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Isaiah predicted in Isaiah 49.2 of the future suffering servant Jesus He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. And we know that when Christ returns, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And while it is true, we need to copy Jesus and and use God's word, our Bibles, in our fight against our temptations, We also need to wound our enemy with stabs of truth, to put the enemy on the defensive a little bit. We'll never vanquish him, but we can vanish him here and there. James said, James 4, 7, resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. So whatever that is in that close combat, you're using your scriptures to fight him off. You also need to use your scriptures to give him a little stab. (laughs) This is the heat of the battle right here. And it's, it's very dangerous, very dangerous. But we can rejoice that Jesus has already fought this battle on our behalf. He conquered sin, he conquered Satan, not with some giant angel army, but with his own mouth, his word. And when we don his armor, when we pick up his word, and then we can, we can confidently sing, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him, his rage we can't endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little what? Word shall fell him. The moment Christ speaks, you're done, Satan. Guess what? That's not the start of a battle. <laughs> He's done. He's done. Ours is to persevere until then, and we persevere standing in his armor. Such is the armor of God that every child of God puts on every day with God. How do you put on that spiritual armor? The answer is really simple, and it's right there in verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Spiritual armor 
is only accessed through spiritual means. The only way to put on the armor is to be a man of prayer. The only way to put on the armor is to be a woman of prayer. You can't live for God if you're not delighting in God. You've got to be communing with God, engaging with God as a person. And this is done fundamentally by prayer. We receive from God His Word, His truth instructs us, but we speak to God in words of prayer. You can't put your armor on after the battle started. That, there's no time for that. If you save your prayers until the battle comes, it's almost always too late. And so the call of, of this whole book is really quite simple. Become who you are. This is who you are. Now become this. Stand in what Christ has done for you. And you do this by communing with him. So put on the whole panoply of God, the whole selection of God's armor, beloved, and stand your ground in that spiritual body armor that your Savior has already tested, already used, and get ready for the battle. The battle's going to come every day because you're going to live for him every day. It'll come until the day our king returns and our worst enemy is finally and fully vanquished forever. Let's pray.